Well, we'll go ahead and get started. I think some folks will continue to come in. Good morning and welcome. It's good to have you back at this four-week series that we're doing. Uh, the title of the series is The Bible, Game Change. Obviously, the title tells you that at least somebody has the idea that something needs to pretty radically change with how we do the Bible, what we, what we think the Bible is, what we think we're supposed to do with the Bible. Um, I'll start by giving you a review kind of, of last week, and we'll talk again, remind you of where this whole four-week journey is going, and then we'll jump into this week's session that kind of builds on what we did last week. But let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we love your word. We love that you gave us this gift of your revelation. And the fact that you gave it to us in the form of the Bible, which is this grand story, it's this narrative of you and the world, what went wrong and what you're going to do, what you have done to make it right again, to make it what you wanted it to be in the beginning. Father, we're praying for wisdom. We want your spirit to be here among us in these weeks and days. We jump into this new reading program, the Community Bible Experience, as a church, as we journey through these four weeks, asking these big questions. What is the Bible? What are we supposed to do with it? We pray that your spirit of wisdom will be among us, that you will steer us well and right and true, and that we will come up with good answers, that we will listen to what you say in your word and what your spirit is telling us, and that we will come to a place where we have a deeper appreciation for the Bible and all that you meant it to be, so that it can do its work in the world, because you sent it here on a mission to be part of this agent of transformation that you want to see in people's lives. So that's what we want for the Bible. And for us to do that, we have to do justice to it. This is the journey that we're on. This is what we ask you. So we thank you and we pray to you in the name of Jesus, who is our brother and our king. Amen. All right. First, I'll tell you briefly what the four-week journey is. Some of you might not have been here last week, so I'll outline for you where, where we've been and where we're going. We'll quickly review what we covered last week. And then we'll jump into this week's session, which is on feasting on the Bible rather than snacking on the Bible. So, the big idea in this series is that what we need to do with the Bible is go back. If we want to really do right by the Bible, we have to ask these two fundamental questions. What is the Bible? And then what are we supposed to do with it? Because with everything else in our lives, those two questions are related. If we want to know what to do with something, we first have to know what it is. What's its purpose? What kind of thing is it? Then we can do the right thing with it. My presumption has been, and what the, I tried to make beginning case for last week, is that we've not been answering that question well, really, the way with the fullness of what God intended, for about the last 500 years or so. Ever since we got the modern form of the Bible, Historically, something big changed. When the form of the Bible changed, and there was a number of things that went into that, we changed what we were doing with the Bible in the church. And it's a big deal. Because when God gave us the Bible, the way he gave it to us, what it actually is in the form that he gave it, it, it serves his purposes when we take it on its own terms. The terms by which God inspired it in the first place. If we try to turn the Bible into something else, we might still be using the Bible, but, and, we, and it's not that it's all bad, it's not terrible, but it's not the fullness of everything that God wanted us to do. So, the first week is about the form of the Bible. That's what we covered last week. What does the Bible look like when we open it up? And is this what it's supposed to look like? Is this what it originally looked like? How did people hear it when they first heard the Scriptures? And it's important that we use the word hear more than see, because, of course, at the beginning... Hardly anybody had a copy of the Bible. They, there weren't enough copies to go around until the time of the modern printing press, which was the 15th century. So people overwhelmingly in the history of the Bible, they heard it read, they heard it read holistically, and they heard it read in community. They were always gathered together when they heard it read. People couldn't even go home and do their private devotions in quiet time unless they remembered and they would reflect and meditate on what they remembered, which probably did happen. But they couldn't go home and read the Bible. So they had this organic experience with the Bible. And then in the 15, 1500s, with the, with the coming of the modern version of the Bible, chapters which had come in the 13th century, verse numbers were added in the 1500s. 
you get this new combination of a reference book Bible. So we told the whole history last week of what the form of the Bible is, and this week we're going to talk about the difference that form has made and why the, the books of the Bible that you're going to be reading as we go through this community Bible experience is a different kind of an experience that's actually not an innovation, but a recovery of what the Bible was. Something closer to what the Bible first was, and we think what, what God intends for the Bible to be, and how he wants his people to experience. So the form of the Bible. The kind of the, the summary I'll give of that is, when you look at a modern two-column, chapter-and-verse reference Bible, with footnotes and section headings and red letters and cross-references and big numbers and little numbers, the net effect of all those additives, which were not original and were not inspired, but we've added this stuff with the intention of making the Bible more useful, what it actually has done is turned the Bible into a reference book-looking thing. Right? You open a Bible, it looks like a reference book. Well, with anything else in your life, when you look at something, it kind of tells you what it is. If you see a romance novel, or you see an encyclopedia, or you see... Wikipedia, or you see a Facebook page, the form of it, visually what you see, starts to give your brains clues. This is what I'm supposed to do in this space. It sends a message to you. It's a certain kind of medium, and the medium itself tells you this is the right thing to do with it. If you open the Bible and it looks like a reference book, it's no surprise that people start doing reference book things with it. They start looking up things. Who sits down and reads a dictionary at length? And in depth, slowly, just soaking in all the backgrounds of these words and what they came from old French or old English or the Latin. I mean, who, you don't read reference books, encyclopedias, dictionaries. So is it any wonder that the statistics show, the, the research shows, overwhelmingly people are not reading the Bible anymore? This is, this is not a surprise because we've turned the Bible into a reference book book-looking thing. So, that was the first reason why the Bible that you're reading has all that stuff taken out. It's not original. And the thing that happens beautifully when you take out all these additives that have come in, if you use the food metaphor, you could say we're going back to a natural, organic form of the Bible instead of one with artificial additives. What do you get? You get something that you can eat holistically. And you get a chance, if you take out all that stuff, if it doesn't look all the same with these numbered statements, and last week we had the Geneva Bible here, which was the very first Bible in the 1550s, which included verse numbers and chapter numbers in a printed Bible. And every verse number was a separate paragraph. People just looked it up, and they, they look like they're supposed to be standalone statements of spiritual truth. All right? Instead, when we take that stuff out, what we have now the freedom to do is to say, what kind of book is this? And, and let's show it as the kind of book it is. The Bible's made up of different kinds of books. Psalms is a collection of songs. It's Israel's songbook. It's poetic. You should see the Hebrew parallel lines working together visually on the page. You should see those lines as separate lines kind of talking to each other, the way Hebrew poetry did. If you're going to read in the New Testament, you should see Paul's letters looking like real letters. Because when those letters were delivered to a church, as we're going to see with the letter to Philemon that you were handed, which you're not supposed to open yet, by the way. Don't take a peek. We're going to, that's an experience for later this morning. When those letters were delivered to those churches and somebody stood up in like a gathering like this, if we were a house church, they would read that letter like a letter from Paul to that whole congregation and they would read the whole letter in one sitting. They wouldn't say, well, let's read Romans 1 through 4, and then next week let's come together and we'll talk about the next part of Paul's letter. They were getting Paul's letter, the spiritual apostolic leader, to a congregation. They would, of course, experience the whole thing as one thing. Gospels as gospels. Law codes as law codes. Songs, poetry, all these different forms of the Bible. Proverbs, wisdom books. They should be shown as the kind of books they are because that sets the table for us to feast on the Bible the way God meant for it to be feasted on. Rather than snacking on the Bible by looking up pieces here and there because we're directed to this verse or that verse 
And oftentimes, we know from experience, I know I'm on social media too, I see what people do with Bible verses on these little visual things that they make, and they use verses outside of their context, which is a bad thing, because those verses were meant to have a meaning within their immediate setting, within their setting in the book, and where they are in the whole story, context, setting, the placement of that, all of that matters for understanding that verse correctly. So that was last week. This week we're going to talk about the difference. What does feasting actually look like and what does that mean? And then at the end we're going to talk about some specific books as examples. And there are undiscovered gifts in the Bible that when we start feasting on it, which most people don't sit down and say, well, you know, I'm reading here today and I'm reading there today and I'm reading here. We get this daily manna, you know, verse of the day stuff and we're jumping all around the Bible. What if we sat down and said, I'm reading Matthew's Gospel. I don't have to read the whole thing necessarily in one time, but I'm, I'm going through Matthew's Gospel, and it will take me a few days, but I'm going to read the whole thing. Because then what I'm saying is, we start to find these undiscovered gifts in the Bible because authors of the Bible, they brought in big messages in the Bible, not just in the individual words, but in how they built whole books. And there's these very cool things that happen when you read whole books. We're going to look at some of those. So, the Bible, first of all, we try to get it in the right form so that we'll, we'll do the right thing with it by seeing it holistically. Secondly, we start feasting on the Bible instead of snacking on the Bible. Next week, we're going to talk about how all these individual books, if the Bible's this library of different kinds of writing, is that what it is? It's just this hodgepodge collection of books? No. All those books come together to tell this most amazing story centered in Jesus, about how God is setting things right in the world. And we're going to talk about how the stories of the Bible actually work. One of the things we're going to look at is how the Bibles of the story are what we could call nested. I don't know if you know those Russian, whatever doll things they're called. Is there, I don't know if there's a name for those things. Nesting dolls. So you take one out. That's very clever. That's, that's very descriptive, that term. So you take off the outer one, and there's another one inside, right? And you keep going down, and there's more, and they get smaller and smaller. They... They fit together into one thing. That's kind of how the stories of the Bible work. There's this outer story, and then God chooses Israel, and there's an inner story, Jesus, and then back up to the outer story. We're going to look at how the, how the stories of the Bible all fit into this nested pattern and make sense as a holistic thing. It's very cool. And we're going to talk about how the Bible is a drama, and it's a six-act drama, and what those major movements in the story are. So this is kind of how we... We're starting to build the case that we read the Bible holistically, we read whole books as the central unit, we read books together to get the sense of the whole story, and then the whole payoff for this whole class is going to come on the fourth week when we talk about how the Bible is an unfinished story. Now this is where it gets very, very cool. Because it's an unfinished story, people ask, well, what am I supposed to do with the Bible? I want to live my life biblically, if we're using the modern reference Bible, the temptation is to say, to live biblically means I look up verses and find out what God's truth is on this or that topic. And I say that doesn't work very well, and that's why we end up cherry-picking verses, listening to some and ignoring others because they don't work that way. What's a better model? The better model is reading the Bible as an unfinished story, which is, in fact, a drama, and a drama doesn't become a drama until it's actually enacted on a stage, till you play the part, till you live into the role. So the best thing to do with the Bible is to read the story, immerse yourself in the story, marinate in the story that's gone before so much, especially as it's come to its culmination in the story of Jesus, so that we become Jesus people. Then we are called to take up our own lives as, as roles within that story. So what we're trying to do is say, what's the trajectory of the story of the Bible, and how do we live out that very same story in a new scene? Because we don't live in first century Corinth. We don't live in fifth century B.C. Israel. We live here and now. And so we have to adapt the story to our time because we face questions that they never faced. We face issues that they never faced exactly. We can do biomedical technology things that the Bible doesn't have a verse on. So how do we live the story of Jesus when we're making decisions for our family members about how to use technology in medicine? 
We have to be thinking biblically in the big sense so that we can bring the right kind of story to fruition in the lives of our families in that particular kind of decision. We're going to talk about the drama model of the Bible. The thing that I love about it is that it actually, the word that summarizes that is improvisation. And that is just a blast. To think of our lives as improvisational gifts to God about living his story in a new scene where you don't get just to look up your lines in the Bible. You can't say, oh, my boss did this to me today. I should go back to my office and look up a verse that will tell me what to say to him exactly. Our lines aren't in the book. But we're living by the book, so we improvisate. We, we improv the Bible so that we do the right thing according to the story that's gone before. And what this, what this does with our lives, it turns our lives into works of art. Because drama is one of the fine arts. So to think of the Christian life as a work of art, a thing where truth and beauty come together, and then we offer the gift of our lives living biblically in the story back to God so that the world can see what the story of God is in our lives as a community of gospel players. That's the end game. So that's the big story of where we're going. Last week we did the form thing. This week we're going to talk about feasting on the Bible. And we're going to look at some specific examples of the downside of snacking and the upside of feasting. But before I jump into that, since we, got, we used up almost all of our time last week, I want to stop right there and just see if you guys have any questions about this big journey or anything that we talked about last week about the form of the Bible, and then we can go on. But first, let me just stop and see if there are any questions or comments about the journey so far. Come on, they have to be. This is not a, this is, this has got to be something new, right? Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. And study is study is the thing. This is this this new model has a place for study. But I think one thing that happened in the modern period, because it was a rationalistic turning culture, it was it's when modern science was born, right? It's when technology was born. This is in the modern period. So what we've kind of done is we've elevated Bible study over Bible reading. And the fact is that's backwards. Bible reading is meant to be the primary thing because God didn't give us a textbook. He gave us a book that is filled with different kinds of literature. And the thing to do with literature is to read it. Now, the thing is, study is a very valuable thing, but the deal with study is it needs to come under Bible reading. So I, I would say the model should be we should always be reading whole books. Whatever we're doing in our Christian life, we should be reading whole books and taking in that message of that book. And then within that or with others, we can do individual study on, on smaller parts. We can even do topical studies across books. But it always has to defer to the fact that we're reading the whole book first. Because one thing we often do, and I see this a lot with our Bible studies when they're topical Bible studies, I see like, well, you know, what does the Bible say about love? And then there'll be a list of like 10 verse chapter and verse references, passages that are about love. Well, I see how this goes. I mean, what we do is we look up that verse, and then we jump and we find this verse. But nobody's saying, whoa, 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 what was that second reference? What, what was Paul talking about in that whole letter or in that section? What does that line, that sentence about love, mean within the context of that whole book that he was writing? And I know that every Bible study, you can't stop and read every whole book, right? That would be ridiculous. You can't do that. But we need to make sure we're doing due diligence and not just jumping around and reading little topical things and taking verses out of context. Because I know from experience, it's really easy to do. And the thing is, like, it happens all over the place. Like, I see pastors and I see professors doing this. It's just because it's the modern thing that we've adapted to the Bible. It's a new practice of studying the Bible in a way that uses this reference book model as the primary thing. I think we need to put study back under the umbrella of reading as the main thing that God intended us to do with the Bible. Is simply read it. And to realize... I don't have to get a practical application out of every single sentence. You just, you don't have to. Some of them are very hard to do that with. That's why we have our favorites when we, when we do the snacking Bible thing. There's certain ones we always go to, and there's other ones that we're like, uh, I don't know what in the world that would mean for my life today, so I'm just going to skip it. So what we end up doing is decommissioning whole parts of the Bible because they don't fit the paradigm of a little sentence that makes me feel good for today. So, there's that. All right. Yeah, question over here. 
Yeah, um, that's a good thing to do, I think, as a secondary thing. I think the best way to do this, this experience that you guys are doing is to simply read. I mean, it's enough anyway. It's 10 to 12 pages a day, which is, you know, not insignificant. It's not undoable, but it's at least slightly heroic to read 10 to 12 pages every day, <laughs> right? And if you read, so if you meet once a week and you've read 10 or 12 pages a day, so you've got 100 more pages when you come together, just talk about it like you were in a book club. Like if you were just in a book club and you're all reading, like you, you could do, like, you know, if you're reading a historical novel, you could go and say, I'm going to do some outside research about this historical period so I have even more insight to what's happening in this novel. Nobody does that with book clubs. You just read and then you come together, and I think there's a freshness to this kind of new experience. The other thing I'm hesitant about is, and you know, the book introductions in the books of the Bible will give you a little bit of that context of setting and so forth, but we're hesitant to tell you too much about what this book means or what this passage is trying to say to you. Because I think too often as God's people, we defer to experts and we just, we like quit struggling with the text because we're just listening to what they tell us it's about. And I think when God's people come together, especially in community, and his spirit is there, and you're talking and processing, well, I saw this, and this is what I saw, and I don't understand that, and help me, let's talk about this. That's when the, the word is working in the midst of God's people in a fresh way, and I think that's what the church has mostly gotten away from. We do a whole bunch of Bible study, but we don't do much Bible reading and book club type gatherings where we just talk about the word together in a big sense. So that's kind of what this, this whole process is about. So, let's talk about snacking and feasting, right? So, I happen to, I work for the publisher that owns the New International Version, so we have relationships with Version and Bible Gateway, these electronic, you know, Bible um, places that you can go to and, and use the Bible and get it on your mobile apps and do, do everything, go on your website. Overwhelmingly, the folks at, at Bible Gateway and Version tell me that the thing that are the most popular on their sites is doing topical searches on, the, on, a, on a verse kind of level. So people do like verse level snacking. They kind of like, what does the Bible say about marriage? And then they want a list of all the verses that talk about marriage. Now, you have, this is a very dangerous thing, right? If you go to the, the stories of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you read the stories of their marriages, uh, it's a pretty long journey from taking the practices that they actually engaged in, in ancient societies in marriage, right? Arranged marriages, multiple wives, weird jealousy things going on between wives, the, the practices of what they would do to get children, um, ancient societies were ancient. They did things very, very differently. To look up a verse about the marriage of Abraham and Sarah and just say, I can read that one sentence and I know what God's truth is about marriage is not what God intended when he gave us the Bible. The snacking paradigm is overwhelmingly popular. And the thing is, as I mentioned just a little bit ago, what we've done is we found those places in the Bible that are really great to read. And they feel like, when you read them, you can take them straight up from the Bible to me. Straight up from the Bible to your life. Right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I don't need to know what Paul was saying to the Philippians, or what his context was, or situation, that he was writing from a jail. What their situation was. What the whole letter's about. Because when I read, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it just feels like I can, I can immediately apply it to my life, and it's good. And there's some other ones, right? Jeremiah 29.11, probably the most popular one. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you. Plans to do good things for you, to help you. It feels great. Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. So we've got these lists. I've seen the list of what the top 100 searched verses are on Bible Gateway and version. And people are trying to make a spiritual living off of these small selection of verses. Like you can just live your life spiritually off of these little pieces of the Bible. But what I, when I look at the Bible and I say, man, there's a whole bunch of other stuff in there. And it's not all that encouraging all the time. Right? God's people, for some reason... 
for some reason, God's people in history didn't just get encouraging, promising verses. Now, why would that be? They, they must have been like worse people because they, they seem to get a lot of correction. They seem to get a lot of prophets coming to them and saying, wait a minute, you're missing the boat on this. So yes, God has a promising future for you, says Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon. But he says, here's the things you need to do to get right with God because you guys have messed up big time. But somehow, those verses don't ever make it onto these plaques and these Facebook posts and these promises that we read on a daily basis. I have a poster here that I've, I'm trying to sell into the Christian bookstores, but they're, so far they're just not taking it. It's very beautiful, right? I don't know why they're not going for it. It has a nice verse from Deuteronomy 28, verse 29. It just says, you will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. It's like, okay, that's kind of a cheap shot at this whole industry. But, but I say, wait a minute, it's in the Bible. It's legitimately a verse. If, if we can't use it, if it's unusable for us, if it doesn't speak to us, what in the world is it there for? Why would a verse like that be in the Bible? Seriously, like what, if God only wanted us to live off the fun ones, the good ones, the positive, encouraging ones, why is there all this other stuff in the Bible? What, do we want the Bible God actually gave us, or do we want a Bible where we can like ignore the parts we don't like and just pick out the good little gems hiding among all that dross? What Bible do we really want? Well, why is that there? That's in, in the book of Deuteronomy. There's a section at the end of Deuteronomy about curses and promises. The whole book is Moses' last speech to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land. And he's telling them, this is the new covenant treaty God is making with you, not the first generation to come out of Egypt, but the next generation that actually gets to go into the promised land. And here's the deal, people. You need to get right and live as God's faithful covenant people. If you do, this is what's going to go well for you in this land. But if you don't, this is what you're going to get. Now, I say that's a bigger message for our Christian life, understanding that, than just saying, oh, there's a verse in, in De Deuteronomy 27 that's positive, and this one in Deuteronomy 28 is negative. Let's just live off the positive ones. We need the whole Bible to live our lives well. We need the correction. We need to understand Israel's story. We need to understand all of it in order for the Bible to be what God meant for it to be in our lives. Snacking. The modern form of the Bible encourages snacking. That's what we've actually done, the research says. People overwhelmingly use the Bible very minimalistically. So what does feasting look like? What if we started feasting on the Bible instead of snacking on the Bible? Well, I said the basic unit, the basic building block of every Bible is the individual book. That's what a scripture is. It's interesting how the language has changed. Historically, a scripture in the singular meant one of the writings of the Bible. So the book collectively was the scriptures. Now, people use the word scripture. I hear it all the time. Let me give you a scripture. And they don't mean a book. What they mean is a verse. So now we call a verse a scripture. We need to get back to the idea that a scripture is a whole book and, and understanding books on their own terms. One of the things that we have to do when we're going to read the Bible this way is sort of honor the agreement that every author has with every intended reader. Anybody who writes anything has an implied contract or covenant with the reader. That is, they, because they choose to write in a certain form, they expect the reader to understand that and to follow the conventions of that particular way of writing. Right? One of the psalms in the book of Psalms is a story, is a psalm that, that David sung after he was rescued from being chased by Saul. God came and Saul, Saul was about to get him. He was very, very close. But David escaped because of God's intervention. So David writes this song, and he says stuff that if you were to read it literally would be like, that's crazy. That didn't actually happen. He says, God rode down on the clouds and he stepped across the tops of the mountains and there was lightning 
and there were thunder flashes, and God's presence came down like this huge, burning, incredible presence, and He rescued me from death. Actually, all that happened physically, literally, is that David was hidden, and Saul didn't find him. So why would David write this dramatic imagery of God coming down, like physically stepping across the tops of the mountains with this magnificent, powerful, loud, forceful presence? Because that makes the point of how big a deal it is that God rescued him. This is the importance to David and his life and his story that Saul didn't find him and kill him. So when we read that psalm in the Bible, if we're not following the the covenant of that psalm, which says this is Hebrew poetry, you have to read it as metaphor that's describing in poetic language the importance of this rescue of David, then we will not do justice to that song. If we try to force that into a literal reading that says, no, God did come down and He physically walked on the mountaintops and there were lightning flashes and there was thunder and there was this big visible presence, fire and all of that, then we're misreading the psalm. We're not accepting the covenant. When David wrote that, those words, he expected those who heard or read the psalm to accept the premise of poetry as the basis of the understanding. So we have to do this with every single book in the Bible. First, we have to step back and ask, what kind of writing is this? Is this history writing? Is this a legal code? Is this a wisdom book? If we read the book of Proverbs, and we say these are absolute statements, so that if I do this, the book of Proverbs says, if you work hard, you will be blessed. You will do well in the world. Is that an absolute promise from God? Is Proverbs a book of promises? not. It doesn't always happen. Proverbs is a book of practical wisdom that says this is the way it usually goes if you follow God's good ways of living. It will usually go well for you. And people who don't follow God's ways of living, people who are lazy, who sleep in, it says, those people aren't going to do well in the world. But lo and behold, we have cases where people get up, work hard, are honest and faithful, and disasters still happen. It's not an absolute promise. And there are people who are lazy and sleep in and their rich aunt dies and has no other heirs and they inherit a ton of money and they're doing just fine, thank you very much. Right? It's not absolutes in the book of Proverbs. One of the things we have to take on board in our reading is what kind of book is this and what are my expectations of this? What did the author think they were doing when they wrote this way and am I taking it on their terms? So reading Proverbs as general statements about basically how God's world works, but not absolute promises, that's reading the book of Proverbs well. It's being instructed by it and saying this is what you're supposed to do, but it's not an absolute guarantee, as the book of Ecclesiastes and Job remind us. It's almost like the books of Ecclesiastes and Job are kind of talking back to the book of Proverbs and saying, whoa, here's the case in Job of a righteous man who had mega disaster So the books of Proverbs didn't seem to be working in his life, at least for this time being. And then, of course, God restored him at the end. But this is what it means to read the Bible well. What kind of book am I reading? If I'm reading in Philippians, it it helps to know, even within the book itself, read the whole thing. Read the greetings and and the exhortations at the end, the list of friends, what's happening, what's going on in Paul's life, what's the setting of this book, what is the whole book about. Feasting on the Bible gives us special gifts. So the deal is we we accept the author's covenant. We covenant with them and say, I will read this the way you intended it to be read. The chronology in the Gospels don't all match each other perfectly. Why do we have four different tellings of the story of Jesus that are slightly different, different angles, especially John compared to the other three? Because there's angles on the story of Jesus that bring out truth. Now, in one case, in John's case, the story of Jesus going into the temple occurs early in the book. In the other three Gospels, that occurs when he turns over the tables in the temple. That comes right at the end. Is each book built chronology? Is it built to be chronological? No, they weren't. They're doing different things. John, in particular, uses a lot of symbolism, and he tells the story a certain way because chronology wasn't the big deal in the ancient world about these kind of stories. They're trying to make a point about the way that Jesus brought his ministry and what it means for different kinds of audiences. 
So let me give you some examples of kind of the undiscovered gifts that we find when we read the Bible this way. And these are gifts, by the way, that if you don't feast on the Bible, if you don't read whole books, you'll never see these gifts. And they'll be left undiscovered in our lives and our understanding of what these books mean. Let's start with the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew was written to Jewish Christians, right? People who were Jews, who had become followers of Jesus the Messiah. So they were in a community that was unique. Other congregations that were spreading out through, around the Mediterranean world, there were, a lot of those were mixed congregations of Jews and Gentiles together who were following Jesus. And they had their own kinds of issues to work out. Matthew's audience is Jewish Christians. So what does Matthew do? He goes overboard more than the other Gospels to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of their particular story. He does stuff that, that Paul and the other Gospel writers that wrote their Gospels and Paul in his letters, they're dealing with Gentiles, so they don't assume as much knowledge about what the Jews, their, his audience, what their Jewish understanding was. And here's the thing. In, I mean, our modern reference Bible shows Matthew with 28 chapters. Right? So what it makes us think is, wow, there's like 28 sections in Matthew. But Matthew actually built his book on the number five. Why would he do this? What's one of the first things we see Jesus do in Matthew's Gospel? He goes up on a mountain and delivers a sermon. Sermon on the Mount. Sounds like Moses going up on the mountain and receiving the law of God. So right off the bat, Matthew shows Jesus delivering a new Torah. The new covenant law for the new congregation, the new people of God that Jesus is going to create. So he's Moses-like right at the beginning. He's also Moses-like, right? His family has to run to Egypt because he's going to be killed. So he's going down into Egypt just like Israel did. Right at the beginning, there's a, there's a chronology, um, there's a genealogy of Jesus that shows that he's the true fulfillment of the line of Abraham and the line of King David, that he's the promised king. So this is the, the true Israel coming into the world, and Matthew is showing this in all kinds of ways. But then he builds his whole gospel on five sections. How do we know this? We said last week, the way in the ancient world, in an oral society, the way they marked sections was, wasn't by visually putting a number on a page or marking that section off. Nobody saw those manuscripts anyway. People were hearing them. So for people who are in an, in an oral society where they're listening to something being read, how do they know? What's the marker for them that a new section is being introduced? You repeat phrases. So when they hear a phrase repeated that they've heard before, they know that that's either a summary or an introduction to a new section. Five times Matthew uses the phrase, after Jesus had finished saying these things. And the fifth time, there's a little change, he says, after Jesus had finished saying all of these things. So in an oral society where they're hearing this, they know those are the five major markers of the book of Matthew. Five times Jesus gathers his disciples together at the beginning, just like at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see the line that the disciples gathered around him. Five times in Matthew's Gospel, the disciples gather around him after he's been doing his active ministry, and he teaches them. So Jesus is the new Moses, creating the new five books, if you will. The number five was huge in Israel, and it was tied explicitly to Moses and his five books. This, by the way, is also why the book of Psalms is built in five books. I don't know if you noticed it in your Bibles, but those are still marked. The book of Psalms, Israel's songbook, was collected into fives for the same reason. So Matthew builds his book on fives, and he models Jesus as a new Moses. And then after these five new books of Torah are, are given in Matthew's Gospel, then at the end, there's a new exodus. There's a new Passover meal. There's a new great act of liberation. And it doesn't just free the people from an oppressor like Egypt. It actually delivers them from the deeper oppression, which is the oppression of sin and death. And so the new Moses brings a new exodus for his people after teaching them these five new books of Torah. And then Matthew has him doing the new exodus, leading his disciples in a new Passover meal before the great act of liberation in his death and resurrection. And that's the book of Matthew's Gospel. By the way, he has bookends which is another reason why you should read whole books. Oftentimes, biblical authors put things at the beginning and the end that go together. So when Jesus' birth is announced, what's his name supposed to be? Emmanuel, God with us. 
What does Jesus say at the very end to his disciples? He says, I'm going to go up into heaven, but lo, I am with you always. So this idea of God being with them. At the beginning, it's announced as his name. At the end, Jesus himself gives them the promise. So this whole understanding of the renewal and the fulfillment of Israel's story is surrounded by this great covenant formula, which occurs in all the givings of the covenant in the First Testament, that God is with you. I, I am your God, and you are my people, and I am with you. This is what frames the entire Gospel of Matthew. Now what I'm saying is, in your daily manna reading, if you read one verse from Matthew, and the next day you're back in the Psalms, and then you're up in the book of Philippians, this will never be seen by you. Matthew didn't build his book into 28 chapters. In these five natural sections, oftentimes they occur in the middle of chapters, the way we've chaptered these books, and so you can't even, it's hard to even see that they're there. In the books of the Bible that you received, these sections are marked out just by simply having white space in between the major sections. So if you look at the beginning and ends of those spaces, you'll find that that's where these words occur. So we can see what Matthew intended for his Jewish audiences. They would not just hear the words, Jesus did this so that it might be fulfilled. He actually built into the whole structure of his book the the communication, the message, that this is the fulfillment of your story on a big level. The individual words gave that message, but so did the structure of his whole book. Matthew has five chapters, plus it has this, this preface, which is the genealogy, and it has the story of the new Passover at the end. In the middle, it's built on this book of five. That's what it means to feast on the Bible, to read the whole book and to see that this is what Matthew is doing. Now, what we just did with the Gospel of Matthew, think about that being done with every single book in the Bible. I'm telling you, there are undiscovered gifts in the Bible, and it's freaking amazing. Luke and Acts go together. right? They shouldn't be separated by John. Why do they go together? Luke wrote them as a two-volume history of the early church. Luke has Jesus on this big journey to Jerusalem. Luke has three main sections. The first part happens in the northern part of, of, of Galilee, where Jesus does his ministry. Then in the middle section of the book, he's journeying to Jerusalem, And then the last third of the book, he's doing the big decisive event in Jerusalem. He's confronting the religious authorities, he's killed, and he's raised to death. So that's Luke. And then, ingeniously, Luke builds Acts to extend that narrative in a new direction. So you could have, like, in Luke, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem, and everything comes down to what happens with Jesus and the authorities in Jerusalem. In the book of Acts, everything starts in Jerusalem... And then it's a journey outward, right, as the gospel goes on out into the world until it finally ends in Rome. So there's a journey to Jerusalem, and then there's a journey of the message of the gospel from Jerusalem out to the nations of the world. So Acts is built in six different sections. Luke is built in three. The six sections of Acts are all marked out by the phrase, some variation of the phrase, for the word of God continued to grow and flourish. So in an ancient world, they would hear these three sections in Luke. They would hear these three sections in the book of Acts. And they would say, this is what Luke is doing. He's telling the story of God changing the whole world's story through Jesus. And what he did at Jerusalem is where it all came together. But the implications of that are for the whole world. And it goes from the Jewish gospel, eventually to the the Jewish capital, Jerusalem, all the way to the the capital of the Roman Empire in the city of Rome. And that's the journey. So again, I would say Acts has six chapters, all right, not 28 chapters or whatever the modern reference Bible has for it. By the way, interesting that Luke has six, right? And we know for Jews that seven is the number of completion and wholeness, perfection. It's interesting that he ended with six. What does that tell us? It tells us that the story is continuing. We are the seventh chapter of the book of Acts. Right? We are the ones who are continuing the journey of taking the gospel to our world, and when we're done, that's when the book of Acts will be complete. Now, we're going to run out of time, but I'm just telling you, these kinds of big picture scenarios can be found in the Bible when you feast on it and when you read whole books. Another great little example I'll give you, I think we have time for this, from the book of Lamentations. You know the song, Great is Thy Faithfulness? It's a beautiful hymn taken right from the book of Lamentations. 
third chapter, verses like 22 and 23, something like that. Your, your compassion is new every morning, God. Great is thy faithfulness. I live my life. I count on your compassion, on your faithful love for us. It's like this gem we found in the book of Lamentations. But wait a minute. Think about the name of that book. Lamentations. It's a book of laments. So, when we jump to the middle of the third chapter and say, wow, there's one verse I like in Lamentation, and it's the great is thy faithfulness verse. We haven't earned that yet, actually. It's kind of cheap, frankly, to go to the middle of that book and just pluck that out as the golden verse and not understand what that whole book does. The book of Lamentations is five laments, five songs of lament, and they're brutal. The language is hard. It's very dark stuff. Each one is built as, well, four out of the five are built as an acrostic. That is, they consecutively use the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Every verse, every new line, every new section of those five books of laments starts with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Right? So there's five of them. One of them does, has not 22 sections, but 66, because it uses the, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet three times and keeps building the case. Every single one of those verses, those lines of that poem, those laments, are harsh, negative. God, you've abandoned us. You've destroyed us. This is right after Babylon has come in and destroyed everything, and the people are just completely broken. Those few poor people who are left defeated, they have nothing, their crops have been burned, their cities destroyed, their, their kings are gone. They're just broken people, and they cry out to God these five songs of lament. And it's overwhelmingly negative. So to find in the middle of the third one, which is the middle song, so you have five songs of lament, there's a middle song of lament. In the middle of the middle song, there's one little place in Lamentations that says, great is thy faithfulness. What it does is it stands out like a shining star when you read the whole book of Lamentations and these five songs of lament. What it says is whoever crafted that together as a whole book knew what they were doing. Maybe it was Jeremiah. We don't know for sure. The tradition ascribes it to Jeremiah. But whoever did it beautifully put in the middle of the middle song these words of trust and hope in the midst of complaining to God about how he's completely abandoned them. What it does is it lifts those words up and says, in spite of all of this, God, when it comes right down to it, we do trust you. We know that you're going to be faithful and that this is not the last word of our story. Now, when you read those words just by themselves out of context, it's not a bad thing to say God is faithful and his compassions are new every morning. That can be good. But when you read it in the context of the whole book, whoa. They raise up in importance and you get the fullness of their meaning in a way that you just can't get if you just are picking out positive verses just by themselves. So this is what the Bible is. It's meant to be feasted on. If you take the few minutes it takes to read through the whole book of Lamentations, these five songs, and then when you come to those words, after, and it gets wearisome. You're just reading these complaints and this darkness and this brokenness everything that's wrong with their lives in the world, and then you get to these, these words of hope. It's powerful. And that's what the Bible is that God actually gave us, is this holistic Bible. So as you go through this experience, as you start reading, have you guys started reading, by the way? Has the first week started? So you're into it now? Just remember, like, I would, I would encourage you to be tuned in as much as possible to the words at the beginning and the end of sections, and look, make a point of looking to see if those words have occurred before. Or try to remember. Have I heard this phrase before? Have I heard the phrase, when Jesus had finished saying all these things? Have I heard the phrase, the word of the Lord continued to grow and flourish? Look for repeated phrases, because they're all over the Bible. And that's how oral societies marked out their individual sections, by repeating phrases. Look for those. Look for the, the, the entries of letters. Read the natural form. Read, read them as letters to whole congregations. By the way, another interesting thing. When you read letters in the ancient world, there were these standard greetings, right? Who's writing? Paul and his associates. Who's he writing to? The Christians at Thessalonica or Corinth or Galatia. 
and then the body of what he wants to say, and then these extended greetings at the end. It's three-part form of ancient letters. One of the parts of the introduction was always, not just who's writing and who he's writing to, but a series of thanksgivings. It was expected in the ancient world when you wrote to somebody, you would write a word of thanks at the beginning of the letter, thanking them for, for all the good things that they had done for you, for the good history of your relationship, whatever you could find to thank them for. So when Paul writes to the Galatians, with whom he has a big beef, and right off the bat, he skips the thanksgiving. Today, look at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians. Look at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians. Look at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. All these words of thanksgiving. And then read the beginning of Galatians. You know what that was? That was like a verbal slap in the face to them right off the bat. It was a major offense not to give them a word of thanksgiving. What's the first thing he says to them? I can't believe how fast you've abandoned the gospel. Whoa, no thanksgiving. He is majorly concerned for their faith and their life because they are not getting the heart of the gospel. And he doesn't even bother to thank God for them. That's a harsh thing. And so if you know the form of ancient letters and then you, you, you're looking for those things and expecting them and it's not there, that again brings more level of understanding about the strength of Paul's message to Galatia. And these are the things that reading holistically helps us begin to do. We see the big picture. and We see how a whole book is executed. We gain more understanding about what the Bible is doing in its own world. And its message to us will also therefore be stronger. So read whole books. Eat holistically. And next week we're going to talk about the amazing way these books come together to tell a story. And then we're going to talk about how we're invited into it as a drama. Yes, Terry. Oh, yes, the Philemon. These, what are these? This is a book to feast on. So what you do is, mostly in the ancient world, scrolls were built like this. This is what small scrolls would look like. So they would take the same kind of writing material, papyrus, and instead of rolling it up, if it was a short note, this is Paul's letter to Philemon. This is what it would have looked like. Now, the paper's a little smoother than it would have been if it was real papyrus. But they would fold it up like a fan, fold it in half, tie it with string, and when Paul delivered that letter, or had it delivered, to the church at Colossae, and had this read, along with the letter to the Colossians, to the leader at that church, whose church met in his home, and, and along with this letter was his runaway slave, Onesimus, right there as Paul's telling him what he hopes he'll do with Onesimus. That's a powerful feasting experience. So read through this. Imagine you're in that house church and the owner of the runaway slave is there. Usually slaves were either beaten or killed when they were caught, when they had run away. Read the letter to Philemon, what Paul says to him in front of everybody. So there's pressure for him to do the right thing that Paul wants him to do as a very human, holistic experience of the Word of God. This is what the Bible is made up of. This is a small version, yes. But the whole Bible is made up of these kinds of holistic messages to real people, in real places, in real circumstances that come together to tell us the story of Jesus. So, enjoy Philemon. You can feast on it later today. Yes. Tomorrow, okay. Okay, great. So you're just beginning this experience. Great. So enjoy the books of the Bible. I think it's a new experience for you. Take on the mindset of I'm going to feast on the Bible. I'm not going to live off what Philip Yancey called Bible McNuggets anymore. All right, we'll see you next week. Thank you.